0: All right, well, today, as we continue with our study of the book of Acts, that we are one week away from ending, by the way, and we continue through the book of Acts to develop this idea that we've been talking about all year, which is that life for the believer in Jesus, that's us, okay, is mission. We come today to Acts 27 and to the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 28, where we once again pick up the study of the apostle Paul, who, as we saw in previous weeks, okay, has made his appeal to Rome. You remember that? He sits in a prison in the city of Caesarea, and we've talked about the prison. No bathroom, no sink, no shower, no maid service, no pillow, no cushion, no heat, no A.C. For years... And so bad is the justice system that he says, all right, look, I'm going to play the only card that I can because I'm a Roman citizen. I can play my Roman citizen card. I can appeal to Caesar because I'm clearly not going to get any justice here. So he appeals to Caesar, but he has to go to Caesar, which is where he's going as we pick up this story. But keep in mind that Caesar is Nero. So life's been difficult for Paul. Very difficult. Very difficult. We're studying through the sufferings of the Apostle Paul. We've been studying through them now for many weeks. And one of the things I've shared with you is that as we look at the sufferings of Paul, as Luke records them for us in the book of Acts and then compare them with the sufferings of Jesus as Luke records it for us in the book of Luke, we realize, my goodness, the sufferings of Paul follow the sufferings of Jesus. And I want to kind of amend that a little bit. That is a fact, but what I don't want to leave you with is the impression that Luke took the life of Paul and then fabricated a way by which to make it look as though it followed the pattern of the sufferings of Jesus. He didn't. I think Luke bat, sat back, and by the power of the Spirit, through the insight of the Spirit, years after all of this occurred was completely wowed by the fact that the story of Paul's sufferings that God ordained and wrote, in that he saw the pattern of the sufferings of Jesus. That, I think, is how it's happened. And we've watched it unfold over the last few weeks. So we saw how just as Jesus went up to Jerusalem, he was driven there, was he not? He set his face like a flint, we read in the New Testament, like a stone. He's going to go and he's going to go, even though he knows that when he gets there, he will suffer. Okay, so did Paul. And then when Jesus arrives, he's seized and he's dragged and he's arrested and he's beaten and he's turned over to the Romans. Same with Paul. Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jews, where he faces all kinds of false charges and lies and fraud, and so did Paul. Just as Jesus is struck in the face at the insistence of the high priest in that hearing, so is Paul. Just as Jesus appears before Herod, so does Paul. As he appeared before Pilate, Paul appeared before Felix... Different guy, but same political office. I mean, you know, if you're looking at the storyline of Jesus, and if you know the storyline of Jesus, and you've been seeing it week by week in the storyline of Paul, what are you now anticipating is going to happen for this guy who's on a ship at this point in the story? Crucifixion. But not crucifixion only. See, death is not the end. That is massively significant. The end of the pattern is resurrection, eternal life, and glory. And not just for Jesus, and not just for Paul, but in the story of my life and in the story of your life that God too is writing. That God too is ordaining. That God too is moving you very purposefully through. But here's the problem. If you've done your personal worship this week, you're disagreeing with me at this point, aren't you? Because you opened up your Bible on Monday because you got the email, and if you haven't, you can sign up for it, on Sunday evening or morning or Monday morning at 12.01 a.m., I guess it is, when it comes out and you open it up on Monday morning and you read through and you studied through and maybe you wrote down your questions and thoughts, and then on Tuesday you got up again and said, okay, what makes me say wow about God? And you journaled about that, and then on Wednesday you got up and said, "All right, what should I confess? What sin does this reveal in my life as I think about this and I let the Spirit talk to me as I interact with this text, and you maybe wrote that down, and then on Thursday you said, all right, how do I take this? What do I need to know? How do I need to feel? What do I need to do? How do I engage with these truths that I've been er interacting with all week? Hopefully you did that because that's the process, and you're thinking, Tom, I hear what you're saying. Okay, next thing, and you would anticipate it if you know the story of Jesus. All right, in the life of Paul, we're looking for crucifixion, resurrection, sorry. This is a story about Paul and a storm and a shipwreck and a snake that's it. That is not it. It's a story about suffering. It's a story about death. And it's a story about power over death. Life out of death. It's a story about resurrection. It is a story about the fact that when you and I come to Christ, bringing to Him not just our sin but our whole selves, and I know I've said this a hundred times, but it bears repeating. Look, there's nowhere that Jesus says, hey, do me a favor, just bring me your sin, you keep your life. No, 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 really, just I'll, I'll take care of the sin, go do whatever you want, I'll see you in heaven. He doesn't say that. Jesus, I'd love you as my Savior. As my Lord, I'd like you to just stay over there in the corner. It doesn't work. He comes to us and says, look, I want to tell you something. I have taken my infinitely valuable, perfect, righteous life, and I have laid it down and spilled my blood as the sacrifice by which you are forgiven. And I have purchased that forgiveness for you as an act of sheer grace and love, but that's not all I get in the deal. I've also bought you. When we come to Jesus with our sin and ourselves, He gets us, our sin and us. And we get His forgiveness, His Spirit, His Word, His people, and His cross. You say, come again? (laughs) What does Jesus say about following Him? Sort of His seminal statement on the topic. He says, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself and then take up his cross daily and follow me. That is language of sacrifice. We've talked about it. It's language of self-denial. Oh, But I'd rather, nope, sorry. It's language of death to life as we would define it and as we would construct it and as we would waste it that we might live the truly abundant, fulfilling life, missional, purposeful, meaningful, satisfying life that is ours in Christ. But, and I love that he tells us this up front, that involves suffering. It involves storms. He comes to us and says, look, just like my life involves storms and suffering, it's the pattern. Well, it's not just the pattern for Jesus' life. It's the pattern for Paul, as we're going to see again. It's the pattern for me it's the pattern for you. But here's the deal. We can embrace our suffering. We can embrace the storms that God writes into our lives. And we can endure them knowing that they are altogether purposeful, even when we cannot see the purpose. They are altogether purposeful. And they end in eternal life and glory. It's how the story ends. That's, that's the end of the pattern. And they end in eternal life and glory even when they don't end for us in this life the way that we really, really, really would like for them to. So that's the pattern that we're going to look at this morning. However, in order for us to see that pattern in this story about Paul and a storm and a shipwreck and a snake, I'm going to need to give you a little background on snakes in the Bible. You need to understand the image of the snake if you're going to understand this story. And the first thing you need to know about snakes is that it is the emblem, the snake is, of evil. It's the very emblem of evil, and you don't have to get past like page three of the Bible to figure that out. So you open the Bible, you flip to page three. What do you have? The story about the first man and the first woman who live in perfect relationship with each other. Try to imagine that. (laughs) And perfect relationship with God. Wow. And in a perfect place. Our first parents. Isn't that the place you want to live? Isn't that the life you long for? I feel like as sons and daughters of Adam, somewhere there is written deeply within the code of our subconscious, if you will, deep down in our psyche, the memory of a time and of a place in which absolutely everything was right. What the first Adam lost for us, Jesus the last Adam has reclaimed. That too is the gospel. But anyway, the snake is the emblem of evil in the Bible. We find it in that story. First man, first woman, perfect relationship with each other and with God. Perfect place. That is until Satan, the adversary, the liar, the deceiver, the destroyer, the killer, comes to them in the form of a talking Labrador retriever. Is that what he does? No. No. All right, I jokingly say this, if you're a cat person, forgive me, but he only had two choices, cat, snake. That's it. Just two. Laminix. He comes in the form of a talking serpent, and he brings to them a fruit that is beautiful. It is a delight to the eyes. It looks tasty. Boy, I bet if you ate that, And yet it's the only fruit that God said, if you eat that, you shall surely die. He brings to them the fruit of death, the forbidden fruit, and then he creates a web of lies around it that induce them to eat it. And I thought about that this week, and I thought, you know, he really has not changed much over the years. I mean, he just hasn't. And let me tell you, when the fruit that he brings to you, the fruit of death, looks most tasty... And his lies are found to be most persuasive. It's in your storms. It's in your pain. It's in your suffering. Here's what he does he gathers up the forbidden fruit of your circumstances. Now, why do I say that? Because we are a people of faith. We are not called to live by what we can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch only, are we? We're called to live by the unseen realities of God and heaven and purpose and all of these different things that the Scriptures call us to imagine and then live out in this physical realm, if you will, as if it all exists. And that's a difference maker. We've said numerous times over the last couple of weeks, okay, hey, here's the deal. This life is not the only life there is. Your story, my story does not end in a grave. The forbidden fruit says, take a look around, man, because this is it. And your circumstances stink. And here comes the web of lies. How can God be good and allow this? How can God be faithful and, well, just look at it. How can God be all-powerful and let this keep happening? How can God be present? Do you do you feel His presence? Do you, like, are you feel are you? is it happening for you? you, Does God even exist? If this is happening to you, is he even there? The snake is the emblem of evil in the Bible. And then secondly, to be bitten by the snake is to die in the Bible. We see that in Numbers chapter 21. The people of Israel are living out in the wilderness. Moses has led them there. (laughs) Feel it for Moses for a second because they get out there and there's no food. It's a wilderness. It is by nature a place of deprivation. So, you know, a few million people follow Moses. Good idea. Good idea. Good idea. You know, we're hungry. Not so good idea anymore. And they come to Moses and they're like, hey, man, um, did you think about lunch? Because we are and he has no lunch. So he cries out to God, God, we need to eat out here. And God says, I have an answer for that. My answer is bread from heaven. You've never seen anything like this. It's different from anything you've ever experienced. Nothing like this has ever existed before. In fact, the word manna, which is what they call it, means literally, what is it? So they're running around going, what is it, what is it, what is it, what is it? We just call it that. What are you having for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? We're going to have some more, what is it? And they love it for a little while and then they resent it and then they reject it and what does god do he brings judgment upon those who reject his bread from heaven what does jesus call himself i am the true bread from heaven what a sobering thought But how does he bring judgment in that story? Does he send in a herd of chipmunks? Because they're very terrifying. Is that what he does? He sends in the serpents. Numbers 21, verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents. And I don't think that means they slithered in and were literally on fire. I think it means that when they bit you, you felt like you were on fire. And then you died. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. So there it is. So that many people of Israel died. Why? Because to be bitten by the serpent in the Bible is to die. And if you know the story, they then come back to Moses with a completely different attitude about the manna. And they're freaking out. Please talk to God, get us delivered from the emblem of evil and death. And notice what it says it's one of the strangest stories in the Bible until you get to the New Testament. So it sits as an enigma for how many years? It says, and so the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. He's saying, go get a craftsman from among you. Have him, you know, you know melt some brass down or whatever, and then bang out one of these serpents out of brass. Make a fiery serpent and then set this brass snake that you create on a wooden pole. And then here's what's going to happen, Moses. Everyone who is bitten by one of these deadly snakes, when he sees the brass snake that you create, and then put on a wood pole instead of dying, well, then that person is going to live. So to look in faith, meaning believing you will be delivered from death, at the brass serpent on the wood pole is in fact to be delivered from death, from the emblem of evil and death. Or in their case, physical, I just got bit by a snake death, and so Moses made a bronze serpent. He, you know, I'm just going to go with it. There's no other plan. And set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he, that person who was bit, would look at the bronze serpent, believing that in doing so he would live, and lo and behold he would, in fact, live just like we live when we look at Jesus on the wood pole of the cross, the one who bore our sin, the one who took our curse. Listen to how Jesus explains his whole ministry in a nutshell to Nicodemus because he goes back into the Old Testament and he grabs this oddest of stories to do it. He says, as Moses lifted up that brass snake on that wooden pole in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the wooden pole of the cross is the point, so that whoever believes in Him, whoever looks on Him in faith for deliverance from evil and death, may have eternal life. So anyway, I say all of that stuff because Luke assumes that the audience that's going to be reading his book knows all of that stuff. We understand these things about snakes by the time we get to his story about Paul and a storm and a shipwreck and a snake, but really about suffering and about death, crucifixion even, and about resurrection, and about the fact that this mission that he calls us into, a purposeful life, a meaningful life, an abundant life, that which is true life and yet a life that involves suffering, storms, it involves storms. But guys, we can embrace the storms knowing that they are altogether purposeful even when we don't see the purpose. That's big. And we can endure the storms knowing that, okay, look, no matter how they end for us in this life, here's how they end for us. Eternal life and glory. We pick up our study today in Acts 27 where, again, we find the Apostle Paul. He's a prisoner on this ship. He's on his way to Rome. He's made his appeal to Caesar. Nero good grief on an earthly level is his only hope for justice. He's wasted away for years in this prison in Caesarea. He's finally getting maybe a little bit of fresh air, you know, out on the bow of the boat, and he's heading for Rome. But if you did your personal worship, you know what happens. He's caught in a storm, and it's not a little storm. The word in Greek is literally a word that can be translated hurricane. All right, so we know what hurricanes are like here in South Florida. So, put yourself on a first century big wooden ship in the middle of the Mediterranean in a hurricane that doesn't pass through in a couple of hours or even in a couple of days or even in a couple of weeks. It just sits there. And it rages day after day after day. It's one of those storms that feels like it will never end. Can you relate to that? good grief? Is it going to go on again today? I guess it is. Okay, but surely when I wake up to... No. By next week, it'll... It's like the never-ending storm, is the idea. And by the time we get to the story... It has raged on for so long, the sailors, say they, they've thrown everything they can over the side of the ship to spare the ship. They've put ropes under it. They've done all that they could to hold the thing together. But by the time we pick up the story, all of the sailors, all of the passengers have completely given up any hope of living, and they haven't even eaten because so great is their despair for 14 straight days. But now notice what Paul does because it's part of the pattern. Paul gathers everybody together, I'm guessing somewhere in the hold of this ship, We're all now in the room, storm raging around, and Luke, who's actually there, eyewitness says this, verse 33, he says, "'As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, "'Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food,' and then it says in the ESV, "'For it will give you strength.'" Here's what it actually says, "'For it is for your salvation.'" That's different. Be thinking Jesus here. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you, Paul says. And then Luke tells us, and when he had said these things, and again, think Jesus, he took the bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it. And he began to eat. And he distributed it to everybody there is the idea And then they were all encouraged and and they all ate some food themselves. What does that sound like to you? I mean, if you're thinking sufferings of Christ, you're heading toward his crucifixion. I'm thinking Last Supper. Now notice what happens to the group that took place in that or took part in that Last Supper. No sooner do they finish eating than does one of the sailors spot land. Good news, right? So they're heading for the land. The problem is that between them and the land is this reef, is all of these rocks, and so the ship gets caught in the rocks, and the waves beat the ship literally into pieces, and everyone who just took part in the Last Supper is scattered in the storm. Now, they all make it ashore, as Paul had said that they would, And then Luke says in Acts 28, beginning in verse 1, that after we were brought safely through, which is a miracle in and of itself, we then learned that the island was called Malta, and the natives on the island showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire, a fire, and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. So then when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, and so now Paul's carrying wood. It's curious. And he put them on the fire, what happens? Oh, here's our snake. The emblem of evil and death came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his nose. On his hand. His hand is pierced by the emblem of evil and death. And what do the natives assume? Because they're watching it all. It says, And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, for even though he has escaped alive from the sea, which was amazing... Justice has not allowed him to live, but instead has hunted him down is the idea and taken his life through the piercing of his hand by this snake we all on this island know to be an absolutely deadly snake. But what kind of justice are they talking about? Because it's not the justice of man. You know, like the police didn't say, hey, uh, Paul, you're a bad guy. We're going to throw you into the storm. Oh, wow. You survived that. Okay. Well, we've got this snake. Please stick your hand out because we're going to go with the whole pierce the hand thing with it. They're looking at it circumstantially and they're saying, my goodness, what must this guy have done to explain all of this? I mean, we know that he's a prisoner. We know that he survived the sea. And then what are the odds? The snake bites him, piercing his hand. So if you're thinking, Jesus, what does that sound like? Let me reconstruct it for you. It sounds like the story of Christ who, on the night that He is betrayed, gathers in a little room. We call it the upper room. And He gathers with His disciples for the Last Supper and a political storm that is, in fact, deadly is swirling around them. This is it. After that supper or during it, what does He do? He blesses the bread, He breaks it, He distributes it, and He says in so many words, this is for your salvation, this is my body broken for you, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. Shortly after that, he's arrested, and what happens to his disciples? They're scattered. They run for their lives, man. I mean, it's like these guys out in the water. It's every man for themselves trying to make it to the shore, if you will. He's taken into custody. He's taken to the home of the high priest, and we know that it was a cold night because there was a fire burning in the courtyard, and Peter, who sneaks in, warms himself by the fire. Listening in as Jesus is facing the false accusations, falsely charged, tried, and convicted by the religious leaders of Israel who have been described first by John the Baptist and then by Jesus as being specifically, and I quote, a brood of vipers. In fact, John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, you're about to be thrown into the fire, which I think is interesting in terms of the facts of this particular story as well. And it's at the behest of those vipers that Jesus carries the wood upon which His hands are then pierced. And why is He crucified? Is it to satisfy the justice of men? No. He lays down His life to satisfy the justice of God for me and for you and for all who look upon Him as the cure believing that in looking upon the Son in faith, we are cured from evil and delivered from ultimate death. So if you're following that pattern, what do you expect to see next in Paul's life? He's been crucified, if you will, emblematically. I'm looking for resurrection, and you don't have to wait. Verse 5, Luke says this, he says, Paul, however, shook off this creature, this deadly serpent, into the fire. And he suffered no harm from its deadly bite. So he manifests a power over death is the idea. And notice the effect on the natives. Meanwhile, the natives were waiting for Paul to swell up or suddenly fall down dead because that's what happens when you're bitten by this particular snake. But when they had waited a long time and they saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds about him completely. He went from being a criminal in their minds to now being a god. And that's what they said that he was. And that's exactly what Thomas said of Jesus when he saw him raised from the dead. He says, my Lord and my God. What a difference of opinion. And now Luke goes on and he says that in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for, and I think it's important, three days. And on the third day, if you did your personal worship, Paul heals that man's father, just like Jesus on the third day, performed the single greatest act of healing ever, that of resurrection. Okay, so do you see the pattern? So it makes sense? All right, here's what you need to know. I really don't think Paul saw the pattern. I really don't. Certainly not in the middle of the storm, man. I, I don't think Paul, like, gathered with the group in the belly of the ship and encouraged them here, blessing the bread and breaking it and passing it out and saying, this is for your salvation. And then he thought, like, in the middle of it, wow, this is kind of like Jesus in the upper room. I don't think he's having that thought. I think when the ship runs aground and it's burst into the sea and, you know, he's floating up to shore on a plank, I don't think he's looking around at the people scattered on the waters, running for their lives toward this island, and he's thinking to himself, you know, this is kind of like the disciples on the night that Jesus was betrayed. I don't. I don't think that when he carried the wood, or first, when he stood by the fire warming himself, he thought, well, this is like Peter. It was cold and... I think he's just standing there with his teeth going, and then the fire kind of wound down, and he thought, I need to get some sticks. And so he went to get some sticks, and I don't think as he's carrying the wood, he's like, Jesus carried wood, you know? I just think he's carrying wood. He's going to throw it on the fire because he's freezing his rear off, as is everybody else. And then I think when the snake jumped out, the emblem of evil and death, and pierced his hand, I don't think he went, it's just like the nails on the cross. I feel just like Christ. Christ. you know what I was thinking? Do you know what I think he was thinking? I think he was thinking, good grief, Lord. What in the world, man? I I mean, years in the prison, no bathroom, no shower, no, you know, I mean, you know, no justice. I'm going to see Nero for justice for crying out loud. Can it get any worse than that? apparently it can. Hey, thanks for the storm. Really dig that the whole, am I going to live through the day thing day after day, after day, after day, after day, after day, after day, after day has been awesome. <laughs> then the whole swimming, cause you know, I needed the exercise. That was great. Thank you so much. And then I finally get up here and I'm freezing cause I'm wet and it's cold. So thanks for dialing up a little warmth for us. Then the fire starts dying. I'm thinking I can be helpful. I go get some sticks. I carry it over. I throw it on. And lo and behold, what are the odds? Snake bite on my hand. By the way, the natives are making bets on how many minutes I'm now going to live. So praise Jesus. Do you know what I think he was praying? I mean, it's not in here. I don't know. I just know me. I think in light of all of that chaos, he was probably praying, Dear God, just help me to hang on to you. Because i got to tell you, the evil one has come, and he's come with a beautiful fruit. A tasty-looking fruit. It is the fruit of this total nonsense, at least from my perspective. And he's saying... Are you sure your God is good? Oh, God, He's faithful, right? <laughs> How many minutes do you think you have, Paul? I'm just curious. He's powerful. He's present. He's real. Hmm. Wow. And yet the pattern is there. It's preserved by God, by the Spirit, through this man, Luke, in this book of Acts that this guy wrote long after this occurs. And I'll bet it blew his mind to see it. It's there. But I wonder whether Paul ever saw it. Maybe, but not in the moment. It's there in the life of Jesus, It's there in the life of Paul. We saw it a long time ago in this study in the life of Peter. And the point is, it's there in your life too and in mine. Looks like chaos, doesn't it? But I wonder someday if we won't get to heaven... And just as they're here for us is this written account of this pattern in the life of Paul that we might know that the pattern exists even though maybe we can't always see the pattern that exists. I wonder if there won't be some kind of great library in heaven. And i got to believe that there will be a killer library in heaven because I'm into books and heaven will not be right without books. I'm sorry. It just, it won't. My daughter will work there as the librarian. And if you're looking for me, that's where I'll be. And I'm sure they'll have the Dewey Decimal System, which I've never understood, and I don't have enough patience to figure out. I just go in, I go to the desk, I find the librarian, and I say something like, can you show me exactly where this book And by exactly is, I mean, is this. I mean, take me by the hand, lead me to the row where the hundred thousand books are, and don't just say, it's down this aisle. Say, here it is, and then give it to me. Okay, I wonder if there won't be a book with my name on it and yours. A book that will be able to read and turn the pages and go, <sighs> I never saw that. You know what, I didn't get that at all. I, good grief, that's what was going on with this. page after page, story after story, storm after storm. We are not called to live in light of what we can see. That's the forbidden fruit. We're called to live in light of the faithfulness of our God, who really is writing the stories of our lives in a way that actually does make sense, even when we can't see how it makes sense. And who comes to us and says, look, it may not always end for you the way that you would like in this life. Sometimes it will. But it will always end in eternal life and glory. The mission involves storms. And we have to trust God in our storms, guys. And He gives us stories like this to make that point for us. It's wonderful. So I want to leave you uh, with a choice. If you're in a storm, and lots of people are in a storm right now, And I think this is the choice. Now, there may be some other option that I haven't thought of, but I I think that the choice is this. Number one, will you receive from the hand of the evil one the forbidden fruit of your circumstances and choose to believe his lie that this life is all that there is and that there's no other reality by which what's happening in your life makes sense and therefore you should doubt God's goodness and faithfulness and power and presence and everything else about him and maybe even whether or not he's even there. Or will you receive from the hand of your Savior His forgiveness, His Spirit, His Word, His people, and His way of the cross, which involves storms. But they're storms that you can embrace and endure because of the pattern of Jesus and Paul at work in your life. So I leave you with that. May you embrace Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you uh, confessing that life does not make sense to us so much of the time. We long for a place in which everything is right. And we do not understand why it isn't here yet. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to reject the temptations of the evil one, who would tempt us, who would bring us the fruit of death, death of hope, death of joy, death of heart, death of soul. who would call us to look only at what we can see and smell and hear and taste and touch in this world, and this life and this moment from our itty-bitty little perspective with our little bitty minds and doubt you in every possible way. Lord, help us to cling to Christ instead. Help us to be reminded, God, of our forgiveness by your Spirit, through your Word, in community with your people, that our way is the way of the cross. It is a joyous way. It is a purposeful way, it is a meaningful way, but it is at times a difficult way. And yet you are ever at work within it, bringing yourself glory in the heavens and in the earth, in realities that we do not see, that we have no sense of whatsoever oftentimes, and in which we bring you many times the greatest glory. By praising you even when it makes no sense circumstantially to do it. By hanging on even when, okay, it just doesn't look like, no, yeah. mm -mm. God, give us the faith that we need, the grace that we need, the strength that we need. Lord, to embrace and and to endure the storms that you bring us, knowing that they are purposeful even when we don't see that. And God, knowing how they end, eternal life and glory. Do these things for your glory and for the peace and prosperity of we, your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.